This is Logic 101. Terry asked me what I would like to teach a class on, and I had no trouble coming up with this topic. This, I taught this, the logic and rhetoric class to the ninth grade last year, and I have been sorely missing it this year. It's just a wonderful class and a wonderful um, pedagogy. So I wanted to share it with you all because you might not necessarily be aware of um, this program of teaching logic to the ninth grade. So we, just as a brief overview, we have a logic and rhetoric class. It's a required course for the ninth grade. And this fits into the broader um, vision for the pedagogy of our school of emphasizing logic at this age, eighth, ninth, and also tenth grade. This is a major element of, this is the, the brain is developing, the arguments are developing. And so we heighten this and we focus on this to help the students really become very good in logical skills. The class is called Logic and Rhetoric, but because they're in the logical stage of development, we focus on logic. And rhetoric is really a, uh, we dip into it, but really as a foretaste for what they'll be doing in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. That's when it really gets fleshed out, the rhetorical side of things. They learn the elements of good writing, but it's really a logic course. That's the, the meat and potatoes of the course. So I thought what we do today is read this first little um, blurb about these, these um, developmental stages to give you context for what I'm about to do for you today. This is based on the curriculum, and I thought I would share it. So it's functioning in terms of, yay, you get a logic um, class. But it's also functioning as a little glimpse into the logic classroom and the logic textbook which you might not be aware of. So let's take a look at this first blurb here on the trivium. Um, our liberal arts curriculum teaches the tools of learning. Grammar, this, this term does not mean direct objects, verbs, nouns, like we tend to think of this word. Rather, it is the art of observation, categorization, memory. So think of a theology class where they might, students might be memorizing the Ten Commandments, let's say. That is the grammatical stage. That's a grammatical um, uh, tool that they're learning, how to memorize. Uh, think of a science class. If they're outside and they're observing a patch of ground and what happens with plants developing over a period of time, they're observing carefully and they're taking notes. That's a grammatical stage as well, the observation, the art of observation. And then um, categorization as well. So what, now that I have this data, how do I arrange it? How can I group this? Secondly, the second uh, major stage in learning is the logical stage. And I mentioned this, thinking clearly and well. And then lastly, we have the rhetorical stage. And this is persuasion and elegance in expression of thought. Notice they go together. It's not just persuasiveness. I think that's typically how it's used, is that Rhetoric equals the art of persuading someone. But it's also, how can I say this elegantly? How can I say it eloquently? That's also that final stage. Moving on in our paragraph here. These tools are taught systematically at the developmentally appropriate time. And they imbue every course the student takes. So it's, kind of a, it's a meta skill set, if you want to think of it that way. It imbues all of their classes. While these stages of human develop are not hard lines for delineation, they are a question of emphasis and do express the broad curricular and pedagogical needs of a student. So a sixth grader, let's, let's say for instance, a sixth grader, the pedagogical needs of that sixth grader are going to be observation. I like to say they're increasing their storehouse of experience. You can't think clearly if you have no 
context for ex experience. So we, we experience and we observe. Um, the logical stage, and you all know this for those who have girls in 8th, ninth, and 10th grade, they're developing their arts of persuasion, persuasion trying to convince you to let them do whatever. Um, so let's capitalize on that and let's direct that. That's the logical stage. We teach a logic class. Moving on. Our curriculum follows this general division while always recognizing that at any given stage, each of the other stages does play a role. The three tools of grammar, logic, and rhetoric prepare the student to understand and explain the world around her. So it's a big picture. This is what gives an Ocrest student independence of thought, where she's not dependent upon, um, how shall we say, um, propaganda or other people's opinion. She has the tools of thinking herself to form her own thought, what she, what, how, you know, how she's going to approach a subject. And then a nice little picture for you. So this is just a broad overview of what these words mean. What I want to do today is actually to give you a little logic class and, and see how this, how this works. So I, because it's a little class and I am a teacher at my core, I have a homework assignment for you, which you're doing in class. I know. Marty looks devastated. But look, it's not even stapled, and it's a one page. You can read it. So we're going to take three minutes, and we're going to read a story, because we need some data, some gra this grammatical stage. I need a story to work with in order to do logic. So we're in our grammatical stage right here. Great. I am um, not sure if you're familiar with this story, if you've read this story before, but little nugget of goodness. Um, what we're going to do is this is going to be our material with which we work as we do our logic exercise. So we'll be referring back to it. And I am going to ask for contributions and thoughts as well. So it really is a classroom. So raise your hand, jump in. Um, you thought you could sit and listen, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> so um, what we're going to do now is we're going to dive into the very first question which anyone ever has in the context of an argument, which is, what are my facts? You can't have an argument without facts. This is the grammatical stage, and this story are the facts. Now, this is very interesting. Um, in the logic class, we learn how to generate a question. Today, I'm just going to give it to you. The question that we, would, we're, we can ask of this, this essay is, um, should Genghis Khan have killed his hawk? Okay, absolutely not. But let's, let's evaluate this. This is an open-ended question. You could argue in either, either yes, the affirmative, or the negative. Both would be valid. So let's talk in terms of coming up with arguments. Um, Aristotle and the Greek classical tradition point to five different places where we can look to come to know about something. If you are presented with an object, or an idea, or an event that you are unfamiliar with, there are five places you can look to come to know about that thing. So these um, topics, in case you're wondering about the term, good thing I'm left-handed, is um, the Greek word is topos, and it just means place. place. So these are the common topics, meaning these are the five places that you can look to come to know something. Briefly, I will give them to you. You have them on page two of your handout, your stapled handout. Comparison and contrast. 
So let's, um, oh, I don't know. May I take your, your teacup? Thank you all. <laughs> OK, so let's say you've never seen this before, what this object is. The first thing I can ask is comparison and contrast. What is this like? Well, I've got a mug at home. It's a little bit like a mug, isn't it? So it's similar to a mug. But, but it's not exactly like a mug. How is it different than a mug? It has a plate. It's very thin. Mugs are usually fairly thick. So that tells me something about this thing, doesn't it? Comparison and contrast. Another place, another topic that I can look to come to understand what this object is, is definition, obviously. What is this thing? How would I define it? Um, third would be circumstances. When do I experience these things? Under what circumstances do I experience this object? You all tell me. Oh, Christ. At a tea party, yes, exactly. At the Ritz-Carlton? <laughs> At my grandmother's? Pardon? At breakfast. At breakfast, yes. Especially on the weekend. Thursday talks. <laughs> At Thursday talks, exactly. So those circumstances are going to tell me something about it. In fact, what does it tell me about this? It's special. Exactly. The fourth object is... The Greeks call it relation. It's just an old-fashioned word. It just, it's basically cause and effect. So what are the circumstances that led up to this thing? Well, it happens to be padded very carefully and stored in a box for special occasions. That would be a cause. You could think of it as a cause. You could also look at the fact that it might be, let's pretend this is bone china, made um, in China. Right? That's why it's called China, by the way, it's made in China. So what, what were the events that caused this to come into being? Well, it was made in China. Four special tea services. What are the effects of when I use this? What might be the effects of this after I drink from it? It's calming. I feel civilized. There's another effect of it. That tells me something about it, doesn't it? What does it tell me about this object? that it comes from China, that it mm, had to be carefully transported over continents. Again, it's pointing to its specialness, isn't it? Great. And then what do people say about it? My grandmother says that one must always drink tea out of a teacup because tea is special. Right? So each of these are different areas to come to know what this thing is. And in fact, we could define it. What is a teacup? Right? And then we could go into the definition of it. This is just to give you a, a general introduction to um, the way in which the common topics can be used. But what I'd like to do today is actually to see how this gets used in terms of an argument. And the common topics, in a short, the common topics are the ways in which we generate facts about an object. They're the way we generate facts about an object. So let's, let's try this out. You're going to have to just bear with me here. Let's try out using these five common topics on this question. Should Genghis Khan have killed his hawk? And this is just, um, let's call out as we go. What we're going to do is we're going to take topic by topic and see how it works. So I'll start us off. Comparison and contrast. What could we write here? What are we going to compare? Let's compare Genghis Khan and his hawk. That's reasonable. There are two terms in the question. So Genghis Khan and his hawk. Um, generally, I introduce this in terms of, you can ask the question, both are, blank, both have, blank. Both do, blank. So um, both are loyal friends. I mean, you 
or disagree with me, right? Both are loyal friends. Mm, both have, do both have common things? I'm trying to compare Genghis Khan and his hawk. They both have, that's interesting. Yeah, they're both hunters. That's, hmm. Oh. Both hunt. Oh dear. Both, would this be both do, would this be the both do? Both do hunt, right? Both hunt. And both are brave. Good fighters. I'm looking to generate facts for my argument. So I've got three facts here. I'm, I'm not making any judgment about these facts, and I'm not using them one way or the other, but I've got them on my board, yeah? So the second point here, let's move on, definition. What terms would we want to define here? Some always throws the girls. I've got my question. What would I want to define, maybe? What happened? Pardon? What happened? What happened? This is so interesting. The girls always get caught up on this. With definitions, you define nouns. Nouns or verbs. So think of it like a term, not an event. So could we define hawk? What is a hawk? Ooh, do we have any? A bird, a bird of prey, yes. OK, now this gets, so here's a little bit of logic for you. How do you properly define a term? You choose the category to which it belongs, and then you include what sets it apart from the other objects in that group. So for instance, if I were going to define man, I could say the category in which he belongs, human beings, we belong to the mammal category. Right? We're animals. We're mammals. But what sets us apart from any other mammal? We've yeah, exactly. This, this, by the way, is a fantastic question to ask the girls because we argue it for days. What, is, what sets man apart from a dolphin? From a monkey? Dolphins, dolphins are mammals. They give, yeah. I've got this. His rational soul. That's what sets man apart. So if I want to define human being, I have to say a human being is a mammal genus, category, who has a rational soul. So it's the category, and then what sets it apart. So hawk, um, a bird that kills animals for its food, right? a bird of prey. That's a good definition. You have a genus and a category. So we can put that up here. Um, a hawk is a bird of prey. Can you define Genghis Khan? This is interesting. Philosophers will tell you you can't define an individual. When you're defining things, you're talking about, there's multiple examples of it. So you can't define Genghis Khan because there's only Uno, Genghis Khan. Right? But you could define human being, the, ca the category, the term. All right, so we've got these. So let's move on, move on. Circumstances, what is happening at the same time as this event? Um, a nice way to do this, if you're trying to think clearly, is to think of a circle. Put your event here, which is the killing of the hawk. Kills hawk. And then what is going on in concentric circles around this event? What are your thoughts? What's, what's going on at the same time that he's killing the hawk? He's thirsty. The hunt is going on. Oh my goodness, I'm going to run out of 
circles. The snake, now this is interesting, the snake does die, but chronologically speaking, is it happening at the same time? It's happening before, but how else can we spin that for our circumstances? The snake, there we go, right? It's leaking venom and it's poisoning the water while he's killing the snake. Good, so leaking venom. <laughs> and we could say the men, I, I mean, the men are absent. The hunters are absent. They're elsewhere in the forest. He's by himself. These are all examples of circumstances. Now this next one gets at actually about the, the, the snake poisoning the water, the relation, the cause and effect. So what led up to his, this event of him killing his hawk? There's a million things here we could say. Just call them out as, as they come to you. The hawk is preventing. We had this one, the snake has died in the water. Could the hawk have killed the snake? This is interesting. We keep only in facts. So no should, woulds, coulds. Yeah, fact. We spent a lot of time on that one in the ninth grade. Fact. Yeah, he hadn't drunk all day to get it into the past. Yeah, hadn't drunk all day. Great, hard to find water. Anything going on with the hawk up to this point? Hawk couldn't talk, that's interesting. Yeah, I almost want to put that over here actually, the circumstance. That's happening at the same time as the event. So let's put it over here, hawk. Mm, couldn't talk. Okay. Um, what's going on with the hawk before he gets killed? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, the hawk is protective. You could argue that one, which, which category that goes in. But yes, absolutely. Um, what about consequences? So those are causes. Now let's think in terms of what happens after he kills the hawk. What are events that happen after Regret. he? Pardon? Regret. That's a major one, absolutely. What else? Sad. Mm-hmm. Good, right. I'm running out of room. Notice I'm not putting these in any particular order. That's on purpose. Discovery of poison. That's huge. If he hadn't known that there was poison, he would have had a misconceived idea of what just happened. Anything else? No? Yeah. Yeah, that aha moment. Yeah, he, does he take the hook? I don't, I don't doubt you. I just don't remember that. Yeah, in his hunting bag. Yeah, what's with that? He's not actually going to go eat the hawk. He would put. Yeah. I say respectful burial. I think that's a reasonable. Respectful burial. Okay, great. So the last category we've got here is testimony. We've got two kinds of testimony. Testimony meaning someone who can testify to the character or to the fact that the event occurred. So um, 
in this case, we could think who was present at the killing of the hawk? No one. Do we have an eyewitness of the event other than Genghis Khan, in fact? So that's interesting. We've only got one eyewitness. The hawk. <laughs> Not an eyewitness. He's dead already. Too bad. Um, and the horse. That's right. We do have the horse there. If this were a murder mystery, the horse would actually like <laughs> save the day at the end. <laughs> the, horse couldn't talk. the horse couldn't talk. We can put it on our board. All right. So, so let's think about that. Genghis Khan is a witness to the very act that he did. There are two kinds of witnesses. We've got an eyewitness, someone who is there and can say, I saw that. Think apostles at the resurrection. They're testifying that they were there when that happened. No one else was there, but they were there and they said it happened. Then we've got a character witness we call, which is someone who can testify to the quality of the character of that person. Are they a virtuous person? Are they a vicious person? Are they a loyal person? Are they a disloyal person? What about this? So in this case, Genghis Khan was there. He was a witness of the event. So he's an eyewitness. Is he a character witness? Interesting question. Mr. Porras says no. On the hawk's character. And on his own character. Yes, excellent. OK, I'm going to continue my list. So Genghis Khan testifies that what's true about himself. Testifies that he. and learned a sad lesson. OK, so he's testifying to himself. Isn't that fascinating? Can he testify to the hawk? Because we've, right, we've got two guys in this event, or two, two, two creatures during this event. Excellent. Genghis Khan recognizes hawk saved life. And there was a little comment that was made at the beginning. Um, I'm on the top of 38. Isn't it 38? On top of the page, on the king's wrist sat his favorite hawk. For in those days, hawks were trained to hunt. At a word from their masters, they would fly high up into the air and look around for prey. If they chanced, blah, 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 they would swoop down upon it swift as an arrow. So what else can he testify about that hawk? Yeah. Genghis Khan can testify that the hawk, and let's be really specific, that the hawk, is he, a, he's, he's, is he good at what he does? The hawk, is he a good hawk at catching prey? Good hawk, good at catching prey, and also what else? His best friend, exactly. Or and his friend, maybe. I don't remember what it says. We could look at the text, but. It does? Yes. His favorite friend? Yes. I love when it works. OK, so here are some examples of the testimony. But as you can see, our dry erase board is rather a mess right now. But what have we just done? Let's just kind of scope out for a second. What have we just done? If I had asked you at the beginning of this, should Genghis Khan have killed his hawk, you would have said, someone said, no, he shouldn't have killed his hawk. 
And I would have asked why, and you would have said, nothing. He saved his life. Great. But then someone else could argue another point. They could say maybe he um, should have killed the hawk, because the hawk was disobedient. And the most important value of a trained animal is its obedience. That's what makes it good at what it is. And if he's precisely being a bad trained animal. You could argue that. So now what we're noticing is we've just generated a ton of information about this. This is far more than perhaps we would have. Though you're, you're all adults, so I don't know if you would have gotten this far instinctively. But this is a tool you can see. Now I've got facts in my toolkit to then argue, to pull my argument together. So what we're going to do now, so this is the grammar stage. What have we done? We've observed the story, and we've We've made notes about the story. We've kept a log of what's been going on in the story. Now what we're going to do is we're going to organize our thoughts. This is the logical step. Let's turn to the final page of our handout. Um, I've just put it here just so you have a sense of the format of it and how the students experience it. The issue gets written on the top. Should Genghis Khan have killed his hawk? And then we take all of this messy data that's on our board right here, and we're going to sort it according to how it can be used for our argument. So the affirmative, if there's any fact that argues in favor of, yes, he should have killed the hawk, it goes in that column. Anything that can be used for, no, he shouldn't have killed the hawk, negative, goes in that column. And then my favorite column of all is the interesting column, because this helps us, as adults even, really be objective. Is this an important fact or is it just an interesting fact? Is it essential to my argument? Yes or no? And if it's not, then it goes off on the interesting category. Isn't that lovely? <sighs> interesting category. It's fabulous. So let's try this out a little bit just to kind of get a sense of what this would look like. So um, OK, regret. Let's just, let's just start here. Let's take this fact that Genghis Khan is regretful at the end of, his story, at the end of this story. Does that argue in favor that he shouldn't have killed the hawk or that he should have killed the hawk? He shouldn't have killed the hawk. So we're going to say, no, he shouldn't have killed the hawk. If I were doing this, I would put it in the negative column. But I don't have room on my board. So let's try the hawk saw the snake. He should have killed the hawk. He shouldn't have killed the hawk. Is this an affirmative? Is this an, ar an argument or nothing? Or is it an interesting point? Or is it just? It's, it's just interesting. Both are loyal friends. He should have killed the hawk. Definitely not. Should you kill your loyal friend? No, you should. Both hunt. It's just interesting. Unless you can spin it a certain way. I can't think of a way to spin it, but. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That would potentially, like, maybe my hawk has something I don't know about, so I can't tell you. Right, right. So you could. But, could. but, but then you have to. Exactly, so. exactly. <laughs> no, no, no. Both are brave. He should have killed the hawk. This to me, it seems like he shouldn't have killed the hawk. Because he should have, he should know. If, if he knows that his hawk is brave, he knows that about him. Because why? 
because he know he can testify to the hawk's character. This is a brave hawk. Then he shouldn't have killed the hawk. He should have known the hawk was up to something more than what he perceives. Right? He shouldn't have killed the hawk. Where did it go? Both at Rave. So he shouldn't have. The hawk was preventing him from getting what he wanted. No, he shouldn't have killed the hawk. The snake has died in the water. Maybe an interesting point. I don't know. You could spin that. You could spin that. He should have. He um, should not have killed the hawk. Maybe because um, the hawk was saving his life. Right? The snake was in the water. Okay. So we're not going to go through the whole thing, but you see the principle of how that works. Um, once all of the, the facts have been sorted, then the students, we're not going to do this now, but the students actually learn to categorize within a column. So let's say they have 15 points listed in the affirmative column. They then sort those according to what they have in common. So that provides them basically, if you want to think of it as a topic sentence for their, for their supporting points. But we won't go into that. But what I'm wanting us to see here is that this has generated an argument for us. We have facts based upon our close reading that we then use in generating our argument. Good. How does this apply to something not like the Book of Virtues? Where would we use this in real life? If anywhere. Is this helpful to real life situations? Yeah. You could argue, you could go straight into politics. <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> absolutely. You absolutely could. I'm thinking of uh, my favorite story, actually, on this, where I had a, um, a ninth grader last year who will remain nameless, who came, who came to class after having not been in class the class period before. And she announced to her friends, she did not tell her teacher this, which was probably wise of her, um, that she had convinced her parents to let her not come to school so she could write my logic essay, which was due that class period. And the way she convinced her parents was my method. <laughs> what do you do with that? I mean, I could hardly be angry at her. <laughs> I know, I was like, okay, fine, you win. Or, exactly. Or um, another student who was, um, wanted to do swim team over the summer and not do basketball. And how was she going to convince her parents? She had, she had done a complete, we call this an um, Annie chart, the A and I chart, affirmative negative. She'd done the whole thing for her dad, who had said that if she could pre present a convincing argument, he would let her do swimming instead of bas uh, basketball. And sure enough, I, I think she was, she was successful in this. right? You all know, this is the art of persuasion. The art of persuasion. But you can't persuade someone unless you first have facts and a good argument. And this helps us do that. This helps us do that. Great. Any other ideas where this would be? It talks to me about even, even though the singer and the hawk are both good friends, and it seems like the king was not 100% trusted here. Yeah. Yeah. So in a real life, you trust someone, you should, you should trust. Excellent. <laughs> and do you know what we didn't define here? We only defined hawk. But in, if I were, that's a great point. I would ask the question, what is loyalty? Define that term. Unchanging allegiance. And here's this man 
who has been precisely disloyal to his friend. So that's an absolute, that's a very strong argument there. Yep, but we, we didn't even go there. Virtues are a little harder to define than biological, you know, in animals. Um, we could do this in terms of colleges for your daughter. I mean, you could do it in terms of schools, which school your child's going to go to. You could do it in terms of which grocery store am I going to shop at? Well, let's go through this, right? And you, you, could, you could go through each of these common topics, generate all your facts, and then sort the facts. And generally what happens is after you've sorted the facts, you look at the Annie chart and you realize, oh, there's overwhelming evidence for one side of this. It's very interesting. My, one of my favorite stories with this is Five, five years ago or so, so the current senior class, when they were ninth graders, one of the ninth graders came up to me after an English discussion where we had done something very similar to this. And she said, um, we had a discussion, and then they were going to write an essay based on that discussion. And she came up to me rather sheepishly, and she said, after class, Ms. Black I said, yes. She said, well, I thought that Achilles was a greater epic hero than, ep than Hector before the argument. But now I think that, I think that Hector's the great greatest epic hero. What do I do? And I thought, your brain just turned on. Because she just had an intelligent conversation and was able to see that there's overwhelming evidence the other side. I mean, whether or not she's right. Um, you could argue both ways. and It was an open-ended question. But that's a testament to the power of this, the power of logical thought, and the power of being very explicit about it, literally writing it down on a board. When you have family discussions where you're tussling and wrestling, you know, where are we going? Something as silly as where are we going on our summer holidays? Try writing it out. And sorting, especially with big families, as the kids get older and have more and more opinions. Right? Right. I'm right. <laughs> so this has very practical use. And it also helps in terms, I'm thinking now in terms of a parent, this also helps with excellent communication with your daughters and your children. Because this isn't, yeah, well, mom says. And yeah, she's just kind of imposing her will on this. No, you're having an actual conversation about it. And there's room for discussion. And you might decide, you might decide that, you know, this point is actually more important than this point, but you've had that conversation about it. There's been an object, objectivity to it. it. It moves us out of the realm of emotions and gives us the logical skills. So this is the foundation of all the work that the girls are doing. This applies, you can see how very easily this would apply to an essay. But it also applies to their structured thought and moral theology and history, working through. You know, if you're studying the gunpowder plot in history class, well, what's the gunpowder plot? Let's talk about cause and effect. Let's define that. What do people say about it? What do the what do the English say about the gunpowder? The Protestants say about the gunpowder plot. What do the Catholics say about the gunpowder plot? Testimony. How is it similar to some other event or dissimilar to? So these. This, you can see these are meta skills, or they're, they're, they're foundational skills that apply across the board. And it starts in ninth grade.